This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, elections are right around the corner in two Latin American countries, but the echoes of coup d'etats from the past still haunt both. We'll have the latest from Chile and Honduras in a moment. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Venezuela is mounting a full-on assault against big business. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, is actively changing his country's product prices. Maduro created the National Foreign Trade Center to combat capitalism and control prices in Venezuela. He calls it an economic war. In order to fight the parasitic bourgeoisie, in order for the transition to socialism, and mostly in order to protect the people, I will issue a decree to create the National Foreign Trade Center that will become a superior institution intended to control the administration of currency, imports, and exports. Maduro accuses the electronic store chain DACA with overpricing its goods as much as 1,000 percent and called for nothing to be left on the company's shelves after prices were forced down by the government. He accuses wealthy businessmen of hiding products to increase prices. However, critics blame the high prices on the government's bad economic management. Venezuela releases a journalist from Miami after holding him for 48 hours. Venezuelan authorities took Jim Weiss into custody at the Colombian border, claiming he did not have permission to report in the country. A United States embassy official visited Weiss while he was in custody and claimed he was not being mistreated. Weiss joked about the cramped living conditions, but Venezuela released him in good health. Weiss was reporting on the degrading Venezuelan economy and the upcoming municipal elections for the Miami Herald. Doctors give Argentina's president the green light to go back to work after brain surgery. Doctors deemed Cristina Fernandez's brain scan satisfactory, but a medical reevaluation will determine her work pace. Her start date is expected to be November 18th. Six weeks of absence has left some wondering who is making decisions. Since her health leave, her party has lost in the midterm elections. Fernandez is barred from flying for the next month, and she will also undergo more medical tests on December 9th. New information leads Brazilian authorities to exhume Jao Goulart's body. He was the former president of Brazil from 1961 to 1964. A former Uruguayan intelligence officer claims Goulart was assassinated. Forensic scientists have begun the exhumation. They dug a hole to allow built-up gases to escape from the tomb. Scientists will take the remains to Brasilia, the nation's capital, and they will conduct toxicology tests. The results will be analyzed abroad. According to the intelligence officer, Mario Neira, Goulart was killed as part of Operation Condor. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. This Sunday, voters in Chile will go to the polls to vote for president. They'll have a choice of nine candidates, but former President Michelle Bachelet stands out from the crowd. The leader of the left-wing New Majority Party, what was once called the Concertacion, Bachelet is leading in the polls, but will she take more than half the vote? 
to avoid a runoff. We spoke with Professor Patricio Navia via Skype from his office in Santiago, Chile, for his assessment of the race. Navia is with the Universidad Diego Portales in Chile, and he also holds an appointment to New York University, NYU. Here are excerpts from our interview. This particular election is much more about who will lead the country than about what direction the country will take in the next four years. Um, Chile has been following a market-friendly um, democratic system since democracy was restored in 1990 and it is likely to continue on the same path of development and democratic consolidation. It will move slightly to the left if if Michelle Bachelet wins again the presidency. She was already a president from 2006 to 2010, but it will not drastically change directions from where the country has been going in the last few years. What are the prospects for former President Bachelet to become the president again and to win on the first round of these elections? Well, um, winning on the first round will depend on turnout. The higher the turnout, the more likely there will be a runoff. Bachelet will win anyway, um, but if there is higher turnout on November 17th, it is likely that she will be forced to um, win in a runoff. This is because there are nine presidential candidates. So, in other words, we may not know the outcome until December. We, but th- this election is like a romantic comedy. Uh, we all know what the end result will be, um, but we just don't know how things uh, will turn out to get there. So Bachelet will likely be the next president, be it on the first round on November 17, or the runoff on December 15th. Let, let me be clear for those of our listeners who don't track Chile closely, that uh, former pe- President Bachelet, she represents what was called the Concertacion, um, the center-left coalition, and, and her main opponent in this election is the conservative candidate, Evelyn Matei? Yes, there are nine people running in the election, but probably Evelyn Matei will end up in second place. There are a number of other alternative candidates, some from the left, some from the right, but Matei represents the ruling coalition, the coalition in power right now. She's not doing that well in the polls, but she will likely end up second in the November 17 vote. You've compared this election to uh, a romantic comedy. Is, is there some tragic comedy in this too? And th- does this hark all the way back, this particular election, have, have echoes of the um, Pinochet era in Chile? Insofar as the two political coalitions that have dominated Chilean politics represent those who opposed the Pinochet dictatorship and those who supported the dictatorship, the answer is yes. But Chileans are voting about the future, not about the past. Pinochet is not popular in Chile. He's been dead now for seven years. People don't support the military dictatorship. On the other hand, the economic model Chile has in place is inherited from the military dictatorship. The market-friendly policies that Chile has in place come from the military dictatorship. So even though Chileans don't quite like Pinochet, they are still living in a country that was pretty much created by um, Pinochet. In that sense, this is like Star Wars, and Chile would be like Luke Skywalker. 
the father of today's Chile is Pinochet, but Chileans don't really like the legacy of Pinochet in terms of dictatorship, but they do embrace the market-friendly policies that Pinochet implemented. So in that casting, then Pinochet becomes Darth Vader. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing yes, that, that the, there's also some particular irony in this, in this election in that the two leading candidates, their, their fathers took different positions and were, um, depending on what I read, either rivals or at least friends for, for some period of time um, before the dictatorship. They were very good friends, the fathers of Michel Bachelet and um, Evelyn Matei. They were both in the Air Force, they were both generals in the Air Force, and they were personal friends. Um, whereas the father of um, Michel Bachelet was on Allende's side, um, and the father of Evelyn Matei was on Pinochet's side. Um, so they were on different sides during the Allende government and during the first few months of the military dictatorship. Then Bachelet's father died while in detention, and Bachelet herself was exiled. All this happened 40 years ago. So all that historical events are important in forming the personalities and the worldviews of the two presidential candidates, but Chileans are not voting on what happened 40 years ago. Let me ask then, as we look at what Chile's future is going to be, who is going to win this election? Um, you've said that it, it points toward Bachelet. So what are the issues that she's dealing with? And will she be able to deal with the student movement and some of these calls for greater equity going forward in Chile's future? Okay, so since democracy was restored, Chile has made great progress in reducing poverty and bringing about economic development. And the country has been rather successful at doing that. But the levels of inequality remain high. They are less high than they were 20 or 10 years ago. And that's what the student movement is all about. People want to access the benefits of economic development through education. The country has been making progress in terms of increasing access to education. Now, more than 50% of college-age kids attend universities or other higher education institutions. But the quality of the education they get is very different, and the quality of education they get depends on how much they can pay. So there has to be some reform that can facilitate equal access to quality education. Has former President Bachelet, has she put a reform specifically on the table, or are Chileans waiting to see what those specifics will be? Well, she has made some promises, uh, but obviously campaigns tend to lack on specifics and the programs candidates put forth are normally questioned by others in terms of whether they can actually be carried out. Bachelet has promised that she will move towards free universal education in the tertiary level. That's a difficult challenge to meet, but Bachelet has been saying that the country will move towards that. It will probably not get there under her term. But she will certainly push for the creation of more public universities that can offer subsidized quality education to low-income families, something similar to community colleges in the U.S. And some progress will be realized there, and she will also move against for-profit private education beyond education, um, does the package of her reforms that she proposes, do, 
do they include poverty abatement or other items that would go to the equality issues, the economic equality issues? Yes, well, the, the government already has in place, Chile already has in place a number of poverty alleviation initiatives. The poverty level in Chile is less than 15%. So the biggest problem in Chile is not extreme poverty. Most of the poverty is rural. The biggest problem in Chile is how to get those that have escaped poverty into a stable middle class. And that's a difficult challenge um, because you cannot or it's much easier to solve the poverty issue than to create a stable middle class. For poverty, you can use um, direct cash transfers or conditional cash transfers, uh, but to create a stable middle class, you need bigger things, more economic development, stable employment, higher salaries. Thus, the challenge of economic development is what looms ahead for Chile and is a difficult challenge, making the jump from being a developing country to being an industrialized country is what Chile needs to consolidate that emerging middle class. What other issues haven't we touched on that you think are important um, for our listeners to know about? Well, there is also the issue as to how much Chile will deal with the Pinochet legacy. The co political constitution in Chile was written during the Pinochet dictatorship. It has been modified several times, but it is still Pinochet's constitution. Michelle Bachelet wants to create a new constitution. Um, she wants to change a few elements in the constitution, but for the most part, the biggest change she wants is to move beyond the Pinochet legacy. Um, she says that Chile needs a constitution that is generated in a democracy and not a constitution that originated in a military dictatorship and that has been amended um, under democratic rule. Thank you so sure. much, Patricio Navia of New York University and Universidad Diego Portales in Chile, joining us today via Skype from Santiago, Chile. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our guest today is Eric Olson, the Associate Director of the Latin America Program at the Wilson Center here in Washington, D.C. Olson is an expert on Honduras and many other countries in the region, but we've invited him here to our studios for his assessment of the Honduran elections. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here. Tell us where you think Honduras is going in the next few weeks. Well, it's a very, you know, open question. There's uh, an election, as you know, coming up for the presidency, but also control of the national legislature. Um, polling uh, on the elector elections uh, was stopped uh, a little over two weeks ago. Is that by law? So that's by law. And so that last poll gave us a glimpse, but things um, change uh, in the interim. So a little, the, the race seems to be very tight between two leading candidates, uh, the candidate of the National Party that's been running uh, Honduras the last three years, and then the new party, which is breaking down the, the old bipartisan or two-party system, uh, is also uh, uh, tied, technically, 
for the lead. And that party represents and is led by uh, Xiomara Castro, the wife of the former president, Mel Celaya. So when I saw the last polls, it had her up by two points, but certainly within the margin of error that Juan Orlando Hernandez, who is the president or was the president of the National Congress, the National Party, that he was just a few points behind. And so, as you said, a statistical tie. Did, did you see anything different in the last poll that I did not view? Well, the trend lines have been uh, to convergence uh, amongst those two leading candidates. Xiomara Castro for a long time held the five point, seven point, even eight point lead in some. Uh, and so the trend line has been to convergence. And what we don't know, quite frankly, is whether those trend lines have crossed and now Juan Orlando is ahead or whether Xiomara Castro uh, has maintained a tie or crept ahead herself. It's just too hard to know at this point. We've had others on this program in the past who have characterized Juan Orlando Hernandez as as part of what might be called the golpista faction of Honduras, those who supported the coup that upset Honduran politics three or more years ago. And and would you characterize him in the same way? How would you characterize him in the political sphere? Well, there's no question that his political party uh, is the one that really supported the coup. Others in other political parties supported it as, a, as well. Uh, I don't know that he was in, integrally involved in the coup itself, but there's no question that, that the National Party, which has run Honduras on five other occasions uh, since democratic rule returned, uh, is very much uh, uh, in favor of the continuation of the policies that were brought in post-coup. And Xiomara Castro, um, how would you characterize her? If she wins, uh, are we going back to the pre-coup state where her husband was running Honduras, or is something different going to happen? You know, I think that her political party has tried to create a new coalition of people disaffected from the traditional party. So there's a lot of people from the liberal party and those who were more grassroots, uh, resistance-oriented in the post-coup. They've created a broad umbrella of disaffected, dissatisfied uh, people uh, with the status quo. I think it would be too much to say they're going to go immediately back to the pre-coup policies. They themselves recognize that with so many political parties in this running, they're not likely to control Congress. So even if she were to win the election, her party is not likely to have a majority and not even sure she would have a plurality in Congress. So to simply say they're going to return... Uh, I think is, is probably not the case. However, there's no question that she's the wife of the former president and they have a an agenda. They would like to see the constitution of Honduras reformed through some kind of a referendum, plebiscite. Uh, they have an agenda for political reform in the country. Uh, and I think that's the sort of concern that the the old elite, those that have backed the National Party, uh, are, are, are worried about. And they, you know, are fearful of that kind of uh, tendency within that coalition. We should mention that Xiomara Castro is someone who represents the Libre Party, which some also characterizes a split from the Liberal Party. And the Liberals are also running someone in this election, although 
he doesn't seem to be doing very well in the polls. Yeah, he's in the mid-teens uh, as of the last poll. Uh, probably can't win. These polls, uh, the leaders tend to be in the 35 37% percentile as we, as we look at these polls. So whoever wins is, is and this is a winner-take-all, first-round, no-runoff type of election, whoever wins is, is only going to represent about a third of Honduras. And, and there's two-thirds of the country that may not be happy with that person. You know, that's one of the big concerns here, and I would say in two, two regards. One, uh, the winner, whoever it is, will win, uh, as you say, with just a third, third or even, you know, less than a third of the vote. And that's never a strong way to start a government and administration. The other fear is that because it's so close and because there are so many candidates, I think in total there are nine candidates, although some of them are clearly fringe candidates, the, divide, the, the difference between the winner and the second place finisher may be only a point or two if we're lucky. Uh, and then questions will be raised about the legitimacy of the process itself. Was there any problems with it? Uh, and that's, I think, the scenario that's most concerning to all of us, that in the post-election process, you'll have a candidate emerge that wins, but by a close margin, and where there's questions raised about the legitimacy of the process. We've had other analysts on this program say that their prediction is that there's no way that Juan Orlando Hernandez loses because he represents the elite and Honduras has grave problems with with corruption and electoral corruption in the past. You know, I I, I don't think that it's that sort of mechanical. Uh, I do think that Libre has uh, organized itself in such a way uh, that it can challenge. I'm not predicting they're going to win by any stretch, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, and one of the things that maybe is a little bit of a bright spot in this is that the uh, Electoral Council and the Honduran government have tried to make this process as open as possible. They have begged the international community to come and be present. They have done everything they can to open it up. Uh, and there, there are not only uh, uh, Organization of American States, uh, uh, observers, Carter Center, uh, the UN, the European Union. I think that there's going to be a broad representation, by some estimates, as many as 700 international observers um, there. And so hopefully, and I can't guarantee this, but hopefully there'll be enough eyes on the process that it will be difficult to steal the election. Are there problems with the election process? Absolutely. And we can talk about those. Well, what would those problems be? Well, I think one of the things that's bothered me from the very beginning, and it's come out again in the news media this week, is there's really no auditing of campaign fine, uh, campaign expenditures. Uh, the, trip, the TSC in charge, the, the electoral uh, arm in charge of this has, has acknowledged that they have no legal uh, capacity to, to audit the campaign expenditures. So all these parties uh, could be using money from organized crime, from corruption. We just don't know. And I, I, I'm not casting aspersions on one party over the other. I just think that that undermines the credibility of this process from the get-go. And I think it has to be uh, priority number one 
uh, out of the gate for the new administration because otherwise the credibility of elections and the participation process are really called into question in Honduras. Honduras, one of the most violent countries in the world, if not the most violent country in the world. And we saw violence during the coup period. Are we setting ourselves up for a, a, a race that is so close that inevitably there'll be violence afterward? Well, we have to try to distinguish the sources of that violence. Uh, violence uh, was high before the coup. There's evidence that it, it increased after the coup. Some of that violence was political in nature, but I think people overall understand the vast majority of that violence was really related to organized crime, local gangs con uh, fighting over territory. Uh, I think the violence is likely to continue that's related to criminality uh, and crime. Uh, you know, whether there will be political violence uh, or not is an open question. Thank you, Eric Olson. The Associate Director of the Latin American Program at the Wilson Center, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Some observers are confident that the Cuban government's efforts to reshape the country's economy will lead to higher living standards for most Cubans and offer new opportunities for young people. Others however, argue that change is proceeding so begrudgingly and so slowly that it is unsustainable and only further economic decline can be expected. Economic change is already a fact. Cars and houses are now bought and sold legally. Cubans own cell phones. They no longer have to work only for the government. Some 450,000 Cubans have been granted licenses to open businesses or sell personal services. But roadblocks remain. Startup capital is scarce. More than 70% comes from friends and relatives in the United States. Cuba's low-paid population generates little demand for goods and services. A heavy tax burden faces anyone working on their own account. The biggest obstacle is the continuing restraints on private initiative. Only 200 jobs have gained legal status. The entire list, which includes fresh fruit peelers, folkloric dressers, button coverers, pinata makers, bathroom attendants, and operators of children's fun wagons pulled by ponies or goats, would be comic if it were not tragic for the best educated population in Latin America. A new government decree allowing private bathrooms to be rented out for public use came with 13 pages. That's right, 13 pages of regulations. Claiming a need to impose discipline on the private sector, Cuban authorities recently closed two thriving businesses, used clothing stores and DVD and video game centers. These actually served Cuban customers. Discipline is precisely what is not needed. Private initiative needs space for creativity and flexibility to pursue opportunity. Cuba signaled a heightened commitment to reform its economy when it recently announced plans to end its destructive dual currency system 
a system which has created two separate markets, one for Cubans with access to dollars and the majority without. But there was no indication how or when this complicated but essential shift might occur. With luck, the current economic reforms may be a start to a better life for most Cubans and marked the way for political opening as well. But it's hard to be optimistic when progress is blocked at so many turns by a government that appears both indecisive and intent on maintaining strict control. Washington's archaic commercial embargo on Cuba is another unconscionable break on change. Peter Hickam's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>